Hey everyone, you're listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. I'm Raymond Okapil. And I'm Sophie Klomperens. Unreliable Narrators is a podcast where we discuss media, literature, and the arts, and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. In this episode, we'll be discussing Gabriel Axel's Danish drama Babette's Feast, based on the short story by Karen Blixen. We hope you enjoy our discussion. You're listening to Unreliable Narrators. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strummed. Welcome back, Raymond. <laughs> thank you, thank you. It's been a long time, and we've waited a long time for this episode. It's true, we put it off. Yeah, put it off. Yeah, but, you know, I think that that's apropos, apropos for this episode, because... I watched this movie, I think, for the first time when I was like 12 years old or something, and I didn't understand it at all, and it didn't really make any impression on me. But now it's one of my favorite movies of all time. And I think that that fits the kind of movie that we're watching here because it's a movie that takes a long time to appreciate. Like like wine. True. It ages on you. It's fine wine. It ages on you. And <laughs> the actual chronology of the whole movie is about 50 years for the whole thing to unfold. And I have a personal connection to this movie. Um, it's one of my dad's favorite movies. He studied it in graduate school. And also I chose to do this play, do this movie as a, as a play for my directorial debut at, at, at my, at my school. And I had a bunch of <laughs> high schoolers take, take on this, this uh, play. And it was a really big struggle because you know, it was not something that anyone was useful, uh, used to. And it was, it was, it was difficult to get them to appreciate it. But, um, at the end of it, I had students tell me that, uh, actually come to me and say, Mr. Docapil, one of your greatest accomplishments is now a bunch of teenagers love Babette's Feast. So... <laughs> That's a great accomplishment. That's <laughs> yeah. so good. Yeah. But anyway, when you watched this, you said you weren't going to, you didn't think you were going to like it at first. So what do you think of it now? Oh, I, I love it now. I started watching it. And for the first, because it's not a long movie. It's, I think, an hour, 40 minutes or something. And for the first hour, I think, I was waiting for for things to come together in a way that, that made me like it. And I, it was not happening for me, and it felt like there was a lot of unnecessary background, and I didn't know why we were going into the, the life stories of these sisters. The, Babette's not even there <laughs> for a lot of the movie. Um, and then once, uh, even after actually Babette came on the scene, I still was sort of thinking that maybe I wasn't going to like it. But you had told me that it was good, and so I thought, okay, well something must happen here to make it good. And then, and then in the last, honestly, really in the last half hour, it all comes together and I, I highly recommend it's a really good movie. I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. So we got to really actually, in order to understand this movie in order to, instead of going straight to Babette's feast, which is what the, the, the title of the, of the story is about and really what it's ultimately culminates in. We have to take a, spend a long time uh, circumnavigating that and explain like the whole setup to, how everything, how everything happens, um, which I think is unique in the way that the story is set up and the way the story is is paced. But when you think about what what the story actually sets out to accomplish, it it takes it's 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 seeking to take the lives of very very ordinary people in very ordinary settings and trying to articulate some kind of transcendent spiritual meaning out of all of that and when you look at like if we actually wanted to tell the stories of our own lives you know in a kind of drama that uh was in line with with a deeper spiritual meaning you know how our lives actually fit into the to the drama of the narrative of christianity then it's not going to actually fit in that kind of like the sort of the sort of uh, pacing that we expect in a typical movie where you, it's like 
protagonist, protagonist meets problem, protagonist goes on an adventure, protagonist meets villain, and we expect movies to progress in that in a certain way when we don't actually pay attention to the rhythm of our own lives. Um, so anyway, I'm going to go into the summary of this story here, but I'm actually going to be referring a lot to the to the original book, the short story by Karen Blixen. Um, Gabriel Axel made only a few changes from the uh, original short story. One of the changes is that in Karen Blixen's story, it's set in Berlevag, Norway, and in the movie, it's set in the Jutlands of Denmark. An interesting change, um, but we'll stick to the Jutlands, I guess, for the purposes of, of this summary here. But the story starts, okay, it's about the mid-19th century, and it's set in this small Lutheran sect um, on the coast of Jutland, Denmark, in the case of the movie. And the two main characters are Martin and Philippa, and they're named after Martin Luther and, the, and his friend Philip Melanchthon because they are daughters of a deem who founded this very small cloistered Lutheran sect who live a pious life of self-denial, renouncing all the pleasures of this world. So before we actually get to the Babette, we have two, two circumstances that really are essential to the rest of the story. And in the book, they're titled, they actually have two chapters. It's Martine's Lover and Philippa's Lover. So Martine and Philippa meet two men from the outside world, both of which don't end up, um, uh, the both of which have some sort of like romantic, sort of ro pseudo romantic entanglement with them, but the relationship doesn't end up working out. So the first mm -hmm. one's Martine's Lover. Martine's the older sister, um, and she meets this young officer named Lovenyelm. So Lovenyelm is in his mid-twenties. He's living kind of the high life, chasing girls. He doesn't really care about the future. His angry father says, I'm going to send you to Jutland to shape him up. Um, when I was explaining this to my students, I'd say it, it's like, you know, some, um, some, some crazy teenager who gets sent to a wanna camp. Uh, hope. <laughs> like, or Bible camp trying to like make maybe this maybe he'll like you be around Christians you know it's not like he actually cared about like Christianity himself it's like we'll just send him off to to Bible school so that so that maybe he'll become more of a decent person and then and then you go to Bible school and you meet a beautiful Christian girl and you decide oh you know Christianity is a wonderful thing um, mm -hmm. anyway that's kind of what happens here with Lovenyum because he meets Martine and he thinks he's gonna woo her just like any other girl. But then he gets admission to the dean's house and the dean uh, is start presenting him with uh, he, he, he gets a presentation of, of a pious life. Of, and he realizes that these sisters are just like goody two shoes. They're actually good and maybe they're actually better than he is. And he's very disturbed by that. And one of the things that is said said in the book is that he keeps on repeating his visit time after time. But every time it seemed to him that he grew more insignificant and contemptible. <clears throat> and also there's something that happens here that the dean says. He, he has this repeated phrase, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and bliss have kissed one another. And that's kind of a phrase that sort of sticks in his mind for the rest of, this, rest of his life. So anyway, he decides he's not going to, to stay with this girl and he decides he's going to leave. And so here's the quote that he says... It's a quote from Blixen's story. On the last day of his stay, he made a last attempt to communicate his feelings to Martine. Till now it had been easy for him to tell a pretty girl that he loved her, but the tender words stuck in his throat as he looked into this maiden's face. When he had said goodbye to the party, Martine saw him to the door with the candlestick in her hand. The light shone on her mouth and threw upwards the shadows of her long eyelashes. He was about to leave in dumb despair when on the threshold he suddenly seized her hand and pressed it to his lips. I am going away forever, he cried. I shall never, never see you again, for I have learned here that fate is hard and that in this world there are things which are impossible. And in the movie, it's almost, which is beautiful, it's almost exactly the way it, it happens in the movie. So the question is here, first, what's happening to here? Why is this, why is Lovon Yeld so disturbed? And what is it that ultimately turns him away? Uh, I'm going to be totally honest. This was one of the things in the beginning that uh, made me think maybe I wasn't going to like this movie because this didn't 
seem like it made any sense to me. Yeah. Um, now, looking back on it, my best my best interpretation, although this is still the thing about the movie that still maybe makes the least sense to me, um, Philippa's lover makes a lot more sense, <laughs> I think, in terms yeah. of immediately grasping why that happens. But um, what it what it seemed like was happening is that he sees... He, he comes face-to-face for the first time with goodness that is unaffected. Um, it's not pretended. It's real. And it's something that he thinks maybe that he could engage with but actually can't. It's sort of otherworldly. It exists in another universe. And so when he says that uh, fate is hard, um, that some things are impossible... He's saying there's a divide. There's a divide between him and Martine. There's a divide between him and this world or this world of people who are just genuinely good because he he can't cross over that barrier. Um, he can't go become part of that and he can't bring her into his world. And so that that's the thing that now is going to have to cast a shadow on him for the rest of his life. That... that I guess is my best interpretation of it. No, I think you're absolutely right. And this is why referring to the original short story is helpful because it provides commentary in his, like his mindset, which we don't really see in the movie, but here's another part of the, so this is what happens when he, when he, uh, when he meets Martine and it's actually like, it's funny if you think about it hard enough, but there's like this set, the satire satirical element is so subtle. So I was trying to like get my students to like laugh at this, but it was like, okay, this is what, this is why I was talking about a wanna camp, but here's, here's a quote. When she passed him and disappeared, he was not certain whether he was to believe his own eyes. In the Lovignon family, there existed a legend to the effect that long ago, a gentleman of the name had married a Holdra, a female mountain spirit of Norway, who was so fair that the air around her shines and quivers. Since then, from time to time, members of the family had been second-sighted. Young Lawrence, till now, had not been aware of any particular spiritual vision of a higher and purer life, uh, any spiritual gift in his own nature. But at this moment... There rose before his eyes a sudden mighty vision of a higher and pure life, with no creditors, dunning letters, or parental lectures, with no secret, unpleasant pangs of conscience, and with a gentle, golden-haired angel to guide and reward him. <laughs> so, it's like you can kind of see like this how this is happening from his point of view is... Um, First of all, he lives completely in, like, the aesthetic world, and all he really wants is not to have his parents bossing him around anymore. Um, but also, there's a little subtle addition here. No secret unpleasant pangs of conscience. So there's two things that he wants from Martine, and one is to get away from freedom, you know, from his annoying parents, and also to get away from from his own conscience because he knows that he's not really like, you know, living the living the life that he should. And he doesn't get that. He doesn't get that with Martine. He doesn't get the liberty to to kind of forget about this. But he the, he he does kind of like put a halo around her with her being like the 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 female mountain spirit of Norway that she's that she's a holdra and whatever. Um but anyway, what happens here it's very much, it all happens in his mind. It doesn't, it's not shown externally. So it's very hard to portray it. But what happens has to be considered in contrast to what happens with Philippa. Because what happens is very much like, you know, some kind of like uh, spiritual awareness or, or maybe some sort of like sense of spiritual maturity of what he's of what he's going through. And this is what he deals with when he comes back to his garrison town, when he says he thought his adventure over and he found he didn't want to think of it at all. While the other young officers talked of their love affairs, he was silent on his. He became afraid. Panic fell upon him. Was it the family madness which made him still carry with him the dreamlike picture of a maiden so fair that she made the air round her shine with purity and holiness? He did not want to be a dreamer. He wanted to be like his brother officers, you know, 
lives. He doesn't want mm-hmm. to be. He doesn't want to follow what this calling to spirituality. He doesn't want to follow it to where it might lead him, because then he might have to be different, and he doesn't have the liberty to to be successful in in the world. And so he decides he's going to cut a brilliant figure in a brilliant word, world. That's his words. And so we leave Lawrence Lovignon for a while to go off and do that thing. And we turn to Achille Papin. Papa, well, Papin, that's how you call him. Mm-hmm. Achille Papin. So Papin is much more established, has a much more established career in the world than Lovignon. He's a much more distinguished person. He's an opera singer in Paris. And like many celebrities, celebrities, he's getting tired of all, tired of it all. So he decides that he's going to rusticate in the wilderness and find the meaning of life. <clears throat> and, you know, he thinks that maybe if I just kind of get away and get connected with nature, then I will find inner peace. But he finds out that that doesn't really happen. And as the narrator says, he falls into deep melancholy and feels like a man at the end of his career. And that's when he comes across Felipa, who's this beautiful singer and has this element of innocence to her, which just kind of like blows him away. And he says, this is the restart to my career. You know, I have finally found my muse. And so he offers to tutor Felipa. Now, um, Achille Papin's spiritual orientation perhaps is a little bit more established than Lovignon's in, in the sense that he believes in God. Um, he's a Catholic, but his his faith is kind of a little bit more aesthetically oriented in the sense that, you know, for him, it's like God and beauty and poetry are all just kind of like up there in the aesthetic world. He might say he believes in God simply because he's had a really good meal, you know, um, so he introduces Philippa to a, a duet by Mozart called Don Giovanni, which is called the seduction duet. He had never in his life sung as now in the duet of the second act, which is called the seduction duet. He was swept off his feet by the heavenly music and the heavenly voices. As the last melting note died away, he seized Philippa's hands, drew her toward him, and kissed her solemnly, as a bridegroom might kiss the bride before the altar. Then he let her go, for the moment was too sublime for any further word or movement. Mozart himself was looking down on the two. Philippa went home told her father that she did not want any more singing lessons and asked him to write and tell Monsieur Papin so. And they sing this song together. And at the end of it, at the end of it, um, and the end of it, Papin kisses her. And this really scares Philippa. And, and she decides that she doesn't want anything more to do with Achille Papin. So that relationship doesn't, doesn't work out. But, the question is why this relationship doesn't work out has more to do with Philippa and Philippa being disturbed rather than Lovignon. So Philippa says that she doesn't want any more lessons and Papin said, I have lost my life for a kiss and I have no remembrance of the kiss. Don Giovanni kissed Zerlina and Achille Papin pays for it. Such is the fate of an artist. <laughs> In the Dean's house, Martine felt that the matter was deeper than it looked and searched her sister's face. For a moment, slightly trembling, she too imagined that the Roman Catholic gentleman might have tried to kiss Philippa. She did not imagine that her sister might have been surprised and frightened by something in her own nature. So, what's happening here is, just like Lovignon becomes enticed by longings which seem to be spiritual, Philippa almost has the opposite problem, at least at what seems to me, and that's why those two characters are being contrasted. Because instead of being enticed by spiritual longings, she's actually enticed by corporeal longings. What disturbs her is not so much the fact that he kissed her, but the fact that she actually kind of felt enticed by that. And the fact that uh, Papin's overtures of love actually kind of thought made her made her start imagining what her life might be as the prima donna of Paris 
of being a famous singer in Paris. And that actually is attractive to her. And so she, just like Lawrence Lovignum is con confronted with the spiritual world, he trembles and flees. And Philippa is confronted with the corporeal world, the flames of this world, and she, and she trembles and flees. At least that's how I that's how I kind of see the the setup there, of what turns Philippa away. Yeah, yeah. I mean that sounds, that sounds right. Um, I think I for, I forget. I think we mentioned this earlier already, but um, Martine and Philippa, the, the group like the place where they live, the society that they live in, it's a really pietistic Lutheran sect. Um, and the emphasis on spiritualism is really high. So that almost to a almost to the extent where they they strike me as a little bit gnostic. Um, yeah. Where the body is a problem. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Anything related to the body is a problem, and so the fact that uh, one of them experiences a, an an interaction with an experience that would make her think that maybe the body is not a problem or is not as much of a problem as she's been told it is. And that might be true. It might be true that the body is actually good and that it's not separate from the soul, that we're not dualists, that we don't think um, those things are disconnected, but that she's sort of confronted with a a reality that might some uh, something that might show that that's not real that actually her body is connected to her soul and she immediately rejects that which is i think just another aspect of it yeah i think that the 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 tension between body and spirit i mean is is really an existential problem i mean in that sense it's a problem for that everyone has to reconcile with we have to deal with that i don't know whether they're entirely wrong in the fact that the body is a problem in the fact that you are a body but you're also a spirit at the same time and that humans have to deal with that and that's part of our our, our the, the tension that's existed between us and so what i see happening here is that karen blexen is setting up the fundamental problem of choosing between these two things or feeling that you might have to choose between these two things which i think that Oftentimes in this life, we feel that we do and different societies find different ways of trying to integrate or, or solve the problem of, of the body and spirit. And I have kind of a theory here, and I'd be interested to hear what you think about this. But one of the things that I noticed is that in 19th century literature in Victorian society, there definitely was an emphasis on the spirit to the exclusion of the body. And then when you look at Victorian pulp fiction and gothic literature, you know, kind of like the horror, existence of horror and monsters in that area, the primary monster of the Victorian era was the ghost, right? And the Bronte mm -hmm. sisters were really good at, at, at that. They were champions of that kind of the gothic, the gothic uh, uh, genre. So the monster that emerges out of the Victorian consciousness is the ghost. And part of that is because they're, they're, they have a horror of the body. So if we deny the body, we strip the, the soul of the body, then what comes out of that is the ghost. And so that kind of says something about the, the subconscious, like say, let's say, if you will, of the Victorian era. But when you look at the 20th century, you know, we have a situation, especially like post-sexual revolution situ situation, where we glorify the body to the exclusion of the spirit. And what is the monster that emerges out of that? Well, we have not a ghost, but the zombie. The zombie is much more popular in today's society. And what seems to me clear is, I mean, like, what is a zombie? A zombie is clearly flesh. I mean, he is only flesh. That's what defines him. So he's flesh. He's corporeal to the exclusion of any kind of spiritual um, existence. And I think not being able to bring these two together, we get monstrous things, monstrous mm -hmm. creatures. And which is really interesting because when we get to Babette, we we actually do get the word monster that comes in. His They actually kind of see Babette as a bit of a monster in their imaginations. But anyway, we got to get to Babette. So this is how Babette mm -hmm. comes into the picture. So Babette, Babette's a refugee. 
a political refugee. She's running from France from revolution in the year 1871. This isn't the French Revolution. They're still having revolutions in France. Her husband and son are killed. She has nowhere else to turn. And she's referred to Martine and Philippa's dwelling by none other than Achille Papin. And Papin writes a letter to, to Martine and Philippa saying that Babette, she sent Babette to them because uh, he, he thought that he, she needed good people. And when he thought of good people, he instantly thought of them. Mm-hmm. And so he says, they're, they're, the place, they're the place you should go. And he writes a little note to Philippa and says, For 15 years, Miss Philippa, I have grieved that your voice should never fill the Grand Opera of Paris. When tonight I think of you, no doubt surrounded by a gay and loving family, and of myself, gray, lonely, forgotten by those who once applauded and adored me, I feel that you may have chosen the better part in life. What is fame? What is glory? The grave awaits us all. And yet... My lost Zerlina, and yet soprano of the snow, as I write this, I feel the grave is not the end. In paradise, I shall hear your voice again. There you will sing, without fears or scruples, as God meant you to sing. There you will be the great artist that God meant you to be. Ah, how you will enchant the angels. Babette can cook. (laughs) Lovely little addition there. Yeah. And that little, and that little, every single little phrase in here just kind of like weaves together, together in like this web and in, in this brilliant way. Um, but it's a really interesting setup here because every single character is in a position where they sort of regret their their decisions that they made. They made a tiny little minor decision early on in their lives and went their separate ways, and now they all kind of feel like I made the wrong decision. And this is where Babette comes, and Babette pro- promises that she's going to work for them for nothing because she has nowhere else to turn. And um, I'll turn over the summary to you there. Yes. Okay, so uh, Babette then is the, like, their their cook, but also kind of housekeeper. Um, She stays with them for for 12 years. Um, Their first, so... The, at first, they don't really know what to do with her um, because they tell her they can't afford to keep a cook. And she says, I don't have anywhere else to go. I want to be here. And they say, okay, fine. And so they try to teach her how to cook. Um, and the scene, this was the first scene where I realized that I thought I maybe liked this movie um, because they teach her how to make just atrocious, awful things. And she just looks so uncomfortable the entire time. Uh, they teach her how to make ale and bread soup which is just mashing up bread and <laughs> and yeah, uh, yeah. pouring ale through it like in a, a sieve and they tell her okay this is how you make ale and bread soup you have to make sure like boil your like here's how you boil fish and it's just awful awful cooking and she's just kind of sweetly listening to all of it but looking like she wants to throw up the whole time because <laughs> it's so bad um and it's very funny so but she, over time, sort of takes over a little bit, and she starts making food that's actually good. Um, well, she actually starts she starts making the bread and ale soup taste better. Yes. Uh, she doesn't yes. really change anything, but she's like, she makes the best bread and ale soup because she does little, puts little things. This is why it's kind of like yep. Ratatouille, you know? She's, he's like, yes. she's like Remy, you know? Yes, <laughs> In yes. The kitchen. And she, well, there's actually a kind of a striking scene, because one of the first scenes in the movie, actually, is the sisters deliver soup to this old this older man and apparently this is a thing they do often and then when babette shows up there's a scene where we see her delivering soup to this same man and originally he's kind of you know eating the soup and he's not super excited about it and it's not good but he gets excited for her soup and he eats her soup really eagerly and there's no dialogue really to show this it's just really subtly subtly done in the movie um anyway so she stays with them for 12 years she cooks for them uh and then she oh so she mentions to someone in the town i think one of the shopkeepers that she's buying food from that her only connection to france is that there's a a lottery ticket that she has in france that a friend keeps keeps up for her uh from year to year so that's her only connection to france and then lo and behold that is not a random that's not throwaway that comes back because she wins the lottery 
she gets a letter that tells her that she's won. She's won 10,000 francs. <clears throat> and uh, meanwhile, there's going to be very soon a dinner. Well, not actually, it's not supposed to be a dinner originally. It's supposed to be a celebration of the what would have been the 100th birthday of the founder of their Lutheran sect, who is the father of the two sisters. And Babette, uh, the, the sisters assume that Babette is going to leave them and they're sad, but they say, okay, well... She needs to go home. It makes sense. Uh, they don't have any hard feelings about it. But then she shows up back at the house and asks them to that she wants to prepare a real French dinner for the celebration. Ja, we live in France, mesdames. In France, mesdames. In France, mesdames. S'il vous plaît, pour une fois, un vrai dîner français. Uh, which is, I believe, in December, so it's sort of close to Christmas. And the sisters don't want to do that because they think that uh, enjoying food is evil, that there's something wrong about uh, any kind of sensual pleasure, and they don't want to say yes, but she's been so good to them and has been so important to them that finally they agree, to, they agree as a favor uh, to her. And then their entire congregation freaks out uh, they, the sisters cry and ask them to forgive them, that they're, they're going to eat a real French dinner. Um, and they all agree that they're not going to say anything about the food. They're going to eat it, but they're not going to respond to it. They're not going to enjoy it. Um, they're going to do it as a favor to her, but uh, they're not going to, they're not going to enjoy it. As, as Babette's getting ready for the dinner, she has all these ingredients imported over from France. One of them is a turtle because she's going to make turtle soup. And uh, another entertaining thing that happens is, I forget which sister it is, but one of the sisters has nightmares, <laughs> has nightmares about the turtle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because she's, she's so afraid of the dinner sort of corrupting them and, and overcoming their senses and making them un impure. Yeah. So there's a quote here um, when she starts bringing in all of the, all of the, all the goods. Uh, so the ladies ask, what goods? Why, madames, Babette replied, the ingredients for the birthday dinner, praise be to God, they had all arrived in good condition from Paris. By this time, Babette, like the bottled demon of the fairy tale, had swelled and grown to such dimensions that her mistresses felt small before her. They now saw the French dinner coming upon them, a thing of incalculable nature and range, but they never in their life broken a promise. They gave themselves into their cook's hands. <laughs> there's a lot of really fun just kind of like melodrama that's happening around it and it's it's very 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 funny okay so we get to the point so by happenstance there's a lot of like logistics that come to come into this but um that we won't get into but what happens is that the general Lawrence Lovignelm ends up being invited to this dinner and at this time Lawrence Lovignelm has become Lieutenant gone from lieutenant to general Lovignelm. And he has done more than anyone else to live a life that is as moral and as correct as he possibly could. And part of that is because he wants to be able to kind of live up to the sense of conscience that was implanted in him 30 years ago. Um... And there's this beautiful scene where Lovignelm is dressing for dinner and he's having a conversation with his younger self uh, in the mirror. And this is what Blixen writes. An absurd thing had lately been happening to General Lovignelm. He would find himself worrying about his immortal soul. Did he have any reason for doing so? He was a moral person, loyal to his king, his wife and his friends, an example to everybody. But there were moments when it seemed to him that the world was not immoral, but a mystic concern. He looked into the mirror, examined the row of decorations on his breast, and sighed to himself, Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. So what are we to make of that quote there? Uh, the world is not immoral, but a mystic concern. What does that mean? Uh... Well, I, I think part of the point is that he's been missing missing the point a little bit. Um, 
that there is something about uh, faith and about living correctly that doesn't have anything to do with what you do or, or just doing the right things or living morally or being loyal to your king and your wife and your country. Um, but that it's a state of, there's a state of being, uh, that there's something mystic about it, that there's, that you need to be one with Christ and that that's, that's what makes you, uh, what you need to be. That's what changes the state of your immortal soul. And so just living morally, uh, means he sort of missed the point, which I think actually takes us back to when he left, uh, all those years ago and he left with this sense of, oh, here's this goodness, but he left because he thought I can't attain this. And the reason he can't attain this, or he couldn't attain this, is that he missed what it was that made them what they were, which is faith and and love and a relationship or a union with God, not their actions. It wasn't what they did. They didn't get there by just being decent people. Um, so I think I think what's going on there is just he's just missing that point entirely. Yeah, yeah, but he's about to find something very interesting uh, when nobody really knows what's going to happen with this feast here, but what happens ends up surprising everybody. Um, but he comes and comes in here with the agenda, and he says that I will sit at the table where you sat mute, and I will answer every question posed to me, and I will prove to you that 30 years ago I made the right choice. That's his mindset going in. And then all of the other people have the opposite opposite mindset because they are all going to be mute and not say a word about the food. So what comes, what actually emerges as a result of this kind of predisposed, pre, uh, predetermined meditation is kind of a funny misunderstanding because when they actually come together at the feast, Lovignam is very boisterous and he's talking about every single bit about the food that's been presented about oh my gosh this is so good and then you know he turns to his neighbor and says you are you tasting this this is like vive 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 Clicot, 1860 and the neighbor his response is yes yes and i'm sure it will rain tomorrow and so <laughs> there's like this huge misunderstanding but you can see like it's a it goes on for like 15 minutes but you could see the kind of transformation on their faces like when they like try to taste the turtle soup or something and be like i don't know what this is but it's really good and they don't really know what to to say but it's really funny watching them struggle with how good everything tastes mm -hmm. so as this as this uh dinner progresses as they're sitting at this table we see sort of a change that's happening over the congregation and part of it is the food and part of it is the conversation um but we see them trying to kind of get at what is happening, what the significance of the food is, and sort of coming to a conclusion, all of them coming to the, a different conclusion in a different way. But all of them are trying to f somehow eventually reconcile the decisions that, that they made in life and, and the fear, the fear that they had made the wrong decisions, that they had sinned, that they, had, that they were somehow disappointing that they had disappointed god that they disappointed their father the dean and all that sort of thing um pr prior to this and actually this was in the movie not so much in the book but prior to this they we we there's a kind of a setup here that there's a lot of sort of silly schisms that are happening in the congregation you know like a man cheated another guy on timber and then there's a couple also that um i think the the woman in the couple had had left her lover or her engagement to be married to another man and one of the questions she's worried is about is god is ever going to forgive us for the fact that we kind of like left our own original spouses to be with each other but that happened all of that happened years and years and years ago but these are like festering wounds right but then this dinner sort of brings healing to this so uh they they start eating more of the food and and uh, Babette gives instructions to the boy to keep on filling up the general's glass of wine so that he becomes more talkative. And eventually the general decides that he's going to stand up and make a speech. And this is the speech that kind of culminates what the entire story is about and really what, what, the, what the meaning of life is about for everyone there. He says, Man, my friends, is frail and foolish. We have all of us been told that grace is to be found in the universe. 
But in our human foolishness and short-sightedness, we imagine divine grace to be finite. For this reason, we tremble. Never till now had the general stated that he trembled. He was genuinely surprised and even shocked at hearing his own voice proclaim the fact. We tremble before making our choice in life, and having made it again, tremble in fear of having chosen wrong. But the moment comes when our eyes are opened, and we see and realize that grace is infinite. Grace, my friends, demands nothing from us, but that we shall await it with confidence and acknowledge it in gratitude. Grace, brothers, makes no conditions and singles out none of us in particular. Grace takes us all into its bosom and proclaims general amnesty. See, that which we have chosen is given us, and that which we have refused is also, and at the same time, granted us. I, that which we have rejected is poured upon us, upon us abundantly. For mercy and truth have met together, and righteousness and bliss have kissed one another. There's a lot to unpack there, and the two things that I really want to zero in on here is this last bit. What we have chosen is given us, and that which we have refused is, and also at the same time granted us. So, question one what does this uh, mean particularly to Lovenyelm? And secondly, what does this mean as a definition of grace in general? Uh, well, as for the first question, as to what it means to him specifically, I think part of it is that he came back around to what he thought he couldn't have, right? When he left originally, he there was this block, there's a wall between the goodness, the holiness that he saw among these people that he thought he couldn't have and so he left and thought he was just going to do the best he could because he thought that what it required from him was to to act to just try really hard and he was like well like I can't I can't try that hard I can't do that um and so he couldn't he couldn't do it and he left but then circumstances and not not his own actions but just sort of a uh, happy happy accident brought him back here to the place where he thought he encountered that. And I think that's why where he says grace is infinite, that that's, that's really important. Um, that he has been shown through this event, through this feast and coming back here, that he didn't have to do. So it, it that being saved, that becoming what he wanted to become is not a matter of trying really hard or doing all the right things but a matter of um having an experience of spiritual and physical reality coming together um and then it's a matter of of eating that that in the eucharist um that's the the combination of uh the spiritual and the physical world and those things coming together and that that's something that is given to us it's not something that we do and so he came and instead of having to work really hard all he had to do was be fed and that's what changes things for him that's what makes things better so that that would be my answer to your to your first question i don't remember what the second question was <laughs> as a definition of grace in general which i guess i guess you did sort of answer oh that. yeah 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 and yeah, and so this is the way in which Babette really kind of brings all of the problems to to kind of a solution. Because we have the problem of the 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 spiritual intention with the reality of the body. And and that's the problem or let's say the problem of having spiritual longings while living in a body. That's the problem that Lovenielm had when he met Martine. Um, and Philippa's problem was the problem of having corporeal longings while, ha while at the same time being a spirit or having as you know a spiritual element to herself and then having to feel like she had to make the choice. And so they all feel like they made the wrong choice. Philippa feels like she made the wrong choice. Martine felt, feels like she made the wrong choice. Lovignon feels like he made the wrong choice. Uh, Papin feels like he made the wrong choice. And then Babette does this thing where 
you know, she's given grace. She's given the grace of 10,000 francs and she decides that she's going to spend it all creating the best thing that she can possibly conceive to the humblest and almost and the least deserving of people, right? And she says later in the book uh, that the people that she had cooked for originally in Paris had been brought up had been brought up to appreciate things with with to a greater level than than people like Martine and Philippa has had, but for her that doesn't matter. Um, but really, well, the also, great right. Go we, on. I think it might be beneficial here to insert what the final plot twist is, which yeah, is after yeah, yeah. the dinner we find out that Babette, first of all, was a like the best chef in the chef in the world. Basically, yeah, uh, she. She was the head chef at I forget the name of the restaurant. The the, the, the cafe Anglaise. Anglaise, yeah. yes. Um, so she, it's not just Babette can cook; it's Babette can cook better than anyone in the world. Right. Um, so that little 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 line where Achille Papin says Babette can cook is actually like a huge understatement. Yeah, and the other thing we discover is that she spent all all of her ten thousand francs on this feast and she says that's what it would have cost at the the cafe anglaise so it's also um it's i'm i'm thinking a lot about uh jesus washing his disciples feet because easter uh we just had easter and that's what happens on monday thursday or one of the things that happens and that's sort of what she's doing and it's not just uh she's what she's doing what some would call throwing pearls before swine which is all these people who don't know how to cook and don't know how to appreciate good food and she could say no i'm going to go back and be what really what Achille papan was which is uh beloved and famous and she's not going to do that she's going to do like what you said which is to make make this feast for uh the humblest the humblest audience that she can possibly imagine okay keep going i interrupted you no, that's fine. Um, yeah, so so this is actually the story that comes up. And this is kind of like, I guess, what would you call this dramatic irony in the sense that the characters had just no idea what's actually happening here. And one of the things, so the general is actually talking about the food because he's actually had this food before. And so at in Paris, and he's heard rumors of the chef who made it. And so he starts talking to the congregation about this. He, it, 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 and he says it, it's called cayenne and, and sarcophage. So he starts telling him about this dish that he's eating in front of him. Um, and he says that the, he was eating it with a general and the general told him that the dish had been invented by a chef, chef of the very cafe in which they were dining, a person known all over Paris as the greatest culinary genius of the age and most surprisingly a woman. And indeed, said Colonel Galifet, this woman is now turning a dinner at the Café Anglaise into a kind of love affair, into a love affair of the noble and romantic category in which no one in which one no longer distinguishes between bodily or spiritual appetite or satiety or satiety. Satiety. <laughs> and so what 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 Lovenyam doesn't know is that while he's saying this, the very chef who made what he is eating is in in the room in the kitchen, just like next door to him. Yep. Um. But you know they're all they're all eating. They're he's just eating it, not trying to like figure out or penetrate the mystery of what's going on here. They're just kind of experiencing it, which is what makes this meal become more than just a meal it becomes a symbol of of forgiveness and and you see that that is something that happens it happens right it happens to them it happens to the the congregation whether you know they were asking for it or looking for it or not so it's like what you what you have sought is granted for you and what you have rejected it's granted for you it doesn't really matter it's going to be given to you either way and that's and that's what grace is mm-hmm. and we see the redemption process happening in different ways for each one of the members of the congregation in and for Martine and Philippa 
And there was actually another little bit of very subtle humor that I sort of picked up actually after watching the movie again for like, you know, the third or fourth time. And that is <laughs> when Lovenyum starts talking about the grapes. He says, these are beautiful grapes. And then, and then one of the members of the congregation starts quoting the books, quoting the scriptures. I think it's like from Chronicles and they, or something like they came upon the brook of Eshel and they brought for themselves a cluster of grapes and they bore two of it upon the staff. So really what was happening is that the congregant members were trying to cryptically talk about the food by quoting scripture. Like, this is how we're going to get away, get around our little, um, our little agreement to not talk about the food. We'll yep. just talk about scripture that is related to the food. So, um, but anyway, so they're all amazed by this. And then the congregant goes away, happy, blessed, forgiven. Martine and Philip, Philippa come back. They tell Babette it was such a great dinner and, they say that they'll remember it when they come back to Paris. And Babette says she's not going back to Paris because of all the reasons that she you just said. She has spent all of her money on this dinner. And <clears throat> this is, I think, the the ending. And it's such a perfect ending because it brings together the concept of choice together so perfectly. Because Martine and Philippa's instant response to this realization that Babette had sacrificed everything, her 10,000 francs for their dinner, is, of course, you made the wrong choice. It's like, now you will be poor all your life. You've made something. How can you not live with regret after you've done this thing? And so Babette's response to this is that she says, I am a great artist, and a great artist is never poor. And then she says at the end, it was like that with Monsieur Papin, too. With Monsieur Papin, Philippa asked. Yes, with your Monsieur Papin, my poor lady, said Babette. He told me so himself. It is terrible and unbearable to an artist to be encouraged to do, to be applauded for doing his second best. He said, through all the world, there goes one long cry from the heart of the artist. Give me leave to do my utmost. Philippa went up to Babette and put her arms around her. She felt the cook's body like a marble monument against her own, but she, she herself shook and trembled from head to foot. For a while she could not speak. Then she whispered, Yet this is not the end. I feel, Babette, that this is not the end. In paradise you will be the great artist that God meant you to be. Ah, she added, the tears streaming down her cheeks. Ah, how you will enchant the angels. So our final question, I guess, for today is this theme of the artist. This is really what, in some sense, ends up being the kind of rec reconciliation or solution to the problem, to the existential problem of, of choice that's been set up here. Has something to do with being an artist so we've got to figure out what that means so what is happening what's the definition of, a, of the great artist and how is that playing or what role is the idea of the artist playing in the context of this story okay so i think it's weaving together with the the themes of the symbolic world the spiritual world and the world of the body the physical world coming together and one of the ways in which i think it's doing that so um i forget whether it's who is it martine or philippa who says the last you will enchant the angels is it philippa it, it, it's philippa which is important because that's what because well. says says yes. to her um okay so there's this book that i read in college that is one of the books that changed my life, but I don't often list it as one of the books that changed my life because it's not like a, a really old, important classic work. Um, the book is called Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. And it's the book that made me realize that I was a Gnostic uh, because what he says, or his, his introduction is he says, okay, so most of 
modern Christianity, by which we mean American Christianity, thinks of heaven as a spiritual world that is not physical and thinks of hell as a spiritual world that is not physical. And when you die, you leave your body to go to heaven or to hell, which are spiritual realities that exist on a supernatural plane that's maybe a different dimension or something different from, from the real world. And we don't believe in the resurrection. We don't believe that our bodies are linked, that our, our souls and our bodies are not uh, separate things. We don't believe that we come back. We don't believe that we're resurrected. And he says that if you really believe in the resurrection of the dead, which is what we say we believe when we recite the Nicene Creed, if you really believe in that, then that makes so much of what you do in this world important. And it makes the life you live not just a precursor to some sort of real spiritual reality that you live afterwards. It makes everything you do in this life real in the fullest sense that a thing can be real. And he specifically talks about art. He says, okay, so if you believe that heaven is a spiritual world and exists apart from your body, apart from the physical world, and that once you leave the physical world, the physical world is done, that it goes away, that uh, the physical world is not really good, that it's ultimately destined to, to be done away with in favor of the better spiritual reality. If you believe that, then there is no point in creating art. He says, if, if you paint, if you uh, make music, um, if you write novels, if you tell stories, whatever you do, it doesn't matter. It, uh, it's going away. Eventually, uh, the best works of art are going away. And so there's no, there's no point. There's no point in doing them. But if you believe, if you really believe in the resurrection, everything comes back. And all the good stays all the good is resurrected. Um, and so the, the, music of, the music of Mozart is in the resurrection and the paintings of da Vinci, um, the architecture or the, the sculpture of Michelangelo, all of those things, good art, real art is there in the resurrection. And that's why you make things and that's why you do good in the world. That's why it's not futile to... Um, create good government structures and to write beautiful things and to do good um, in the world and to, you know, not just to do things that are fighting world hunger, doing something that's sort of a temporary gain in order to save someone's soul. You're not really there just to save someone's soul. You're there to save the world. And the world is a physical thing. And that involves making beautiful things. Um, and I realized when I read that book, I, I hadn't believed that before. I didn't believe in the resurrection. Um, but I think what's important here and part of what Babette is saying when she says a great artist is never poor is that the things she creates are real and that they come back, which is where the idea of resurrection comes in, I think. For all of these people, if you believe that you're only a spiritual being, your body doesn't matter and you don't really believe in the resurrection. But I think that all of the congregation through this feast maybe come to believe, come to believe that there is reality, that there is truth in the physicality of their bodies and the physicality of the food and of the real world. That means that it is eternally important, which means it has to come back, which means that we believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so the fact that Babette made this feast for this congregation doesn't only matter for this one congregation in some wild and unforeseeable eternal sense, the feast she has made is part of the resurrection and it comes back in the resurrection and it really matters. Um, which I think is, is a lovely thing to think about uh, right after Easter. Yeah, absolutely. And, but so I think that kind of the, maybe the final thought, that I that I want to end on here is that for me what I the way I see it is that like let's say if we put Gnosticism and hedonism as kind of extreme opposites to each other hedonism being the pursuit of carnal pleasure as opposed to Gnosticism which is total self-denial what seems to me to be the case is that Gnosticism and he, hedonism are the necessary results of a life with if we do not have the incarnation of the Logos. 
I mean, because you see that those are the choices that human societies fluctuate between both back and forth throughout all of history. And there's different forms that that takes, but it's always some choice between Gnosticism and, and, and hedonism. It's like if you want to live a moral life, then you've got to live a life of celibacy and, you know, you know, deny yourself of any kind of worldly pleasures. And, you know, that's what happens with Zen Buddhists, too, you know, in, in the East, as much as it happens in the West. Or you just pursue pleasure like those two things can't can't be reconciled and 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 maybe there there there's an attempt to reconcile it and you can see that a little bit in like Hindu religion I think um, but it never really ultimately succeeds and that's what I think that makes the logos the incarnation of Christ the Word becoming flesh something that's that was so shocking and and so incredible and is because it solves that problem. Um, because Jesus says that you know God the in the 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 perfect and the the world of the heavenly the realm of the heavenly which is unreachable reachable and unspeakable and so much beyond the world of the flesh actually became flesh and one of the way ways my theology professors put it is that the incarnation is all the light in the universe all the stars in the universe condensed into a single candle without losing any of its light. And that's kind of like the 10,000 francs of the Café Anglais being brought to this small Lutheran sect without losing any of its light. And mm -hmm. that's, and then, and then that's the significance, I think also of, of communion of the Eucharist is that this is something, this is salvation of your soul but you also get to eat it, which is awesome, you know? Mm -hmm. that, just, that just reminded me of uh, one thing I wanted to say, what you were saying about Gnosticism and hedonism being sort of opposite ends of the spectrum and having an attempt to reconcile them is difficult. Uh, one thing I do want to point out is I think a way in which Christianity accomplishes that, or at least has traditionally accomplished that, is um, more... Uh, the ancient church, so the the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church and lots of other variations of of those churches, um, by which I mean you know Byzantine, Catholic that sort of thing, um, they have liturgical cycles of fasting and then feasting. So during Lent, you have actual restrictions on the food that you eat, which is different from, uh, so Protestants often during Lent will you know you give up something, so you give up Facebook or you give up chocolate or you give up cheese or something like that. Um, but traditionally, fasting means you either limit the actual amount of food that you're taking in a lot or you limit the kinds of food that you're eating. So maybe you stop eating animal products. Um, that's the way the Eastern Orthodox Church does it is you are vegan, basically. And then in the Catholic Church, um, you don't eat meat on certain days and then you also... Uh, on certain fasting days, restrict your intake of food. You don't eat full meals, that sort of thing. Um, and that, that's, I think, a way that those two things uh, get mixed together because uh, you're not hedonist because you don't just get to eat whatever you want whenever you want. Um, there are rules about how you interact with, with the sensual world. But also, you're actually, like, during Easter week, um, it's called Bright Week in the Eastern Orthodox Church, that first week of Easter... You're not supposed to fast. It's actually uh, a problem. The church says you're you're maybe committing um, a little bit of a sin if you do fast because you're supposed to be celebrating. There's a command to celebrate. So there's this fasting and feasting cycle. And I think Babette understands that because she's Catholic. Um, she has an understanding of the, the spiritual significance of a feast and why the church might tell you to feast and why you might be committing wrongdoing if you don't feast when the church tells you to um and uh that this lutheran sect doesn't quite maybe have a grasp on the idea that you fast sometimes and you feast sometimes and that's how you avoid being a gnostic and that's how you avoid being a hedonist yes well we hope that this podcast has uh converted some of our listeners away from gnosticism cured us we all need to be cured of our gnosticism i think <laughs> at one time or another 
at the end of the day. So, you know, I've, I've, I've definitely have been, uh, 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 cured, cured of that, at least, uh, it, on the process of doing that. So we hope that you enjoyed this podcast and I guess we'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by STOA alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com. Check out our Instagram at unreliablenarratorspodcast or email us at unreliablenarratorstoa at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts. This podcast was produced by Raymond Dokapel and Sophie Klomperens, and our theme music was No New Words by Caleb Klomperens. In our next episode, we'll be discussing the song Level of Concern by 21 Pilots. Until then, friends, bon appetit! I know you can see something inside The one part of me that I cannot hide And maybe it's true that nothing is new I can see so much more